broaching the topic of the intermediate state uh, a lot on the show lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I thought it'd be good to have you on and just ask you a few questions because you, uh, I think it's safe to say definitively you do not believe in the intermediate state or at least you're highly uh, skeptical of it, correct? Yeah, skeptical of it's a good word. I could okay. be convinced of it, yeah. but uh, it's one of those where it's like, I just, having seen the arguments, I'm just kind of, I just, New Testament eschatology is so much more simple if you don't kind of insert this premise into it. Yeah, I, I'm, I guess you could say the same for me. I'm skeptical of it, but um, I, I side with tradition when I don't know what the correct, you know, option is. So um, what would you say was like the golden nugget that, that kind of got you more onto the side of not believing in the intermediate state? Well, and there's two ways to kind of approach it, right? And I think you talked about it, I can't remember which episode, with uh, one of the past three or so, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, one of the guys that you talked about. By the way, great episodes, a lot of fun to listen to. Reminded me of our times hanging out in your backyard smoking cigars and chilling. So Yeah, so, yeah I appreciate you saying that. To to, a lot of fun to listen to, a lot of energy, and, you know, it's always fun to just be like, I don't know what these two guys are going to say, I'm probably going to disagree with half of it, this is great, <laughs> but just let them talk, this is fun, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so the golden nugget uh, for me, and there's uh, so there's two ways to kind of conceive of the conversation, um, and I mean just New Testament studies, Christian theology, all of it. You know, kind of you got kind of two things. You either have, and it begins with a question of anthropology. Are human beings, um, we might say, physicalistic? We are we are material beings with no immaterial uh, parts like soul, spirit. You know, or at least in the sense of you know. I mean, because a physicalist, for example, can talk about soul or spirit, but they mean something different by it. They mean something like vitality or memory or mind or some stuff like that. Whereas a dualist would say soul and body are separate entities, and depending on how you frame that, um, can exist interdependently or separately from one another. Um, and so you have kind of the question of, do you believe that we are material, materially, pure, we would say purely physical creatures, or do we possess an immaterial and usually immortal soul that, you know, in addition to being physical creatures. Mm-hmm. And if you answer, and you can still have a re- reject the intermediate state, or at least be skeptical of the intermediate state and affirm either position. Um, although if you don't believe that we have immaterial immortal souls, that solves the problem of the intermediate state right there, because it's yeah. a non-starter. You, you don't even talk. It's like, you know, why doesn't your car fly? And it's like, you're asking the, the, a weird question about something that just, that's not what a car does. So asking me, why doesn't my car fly is just irrelevant to the conversation, you know? Yeah. And so for me, as someone who doubts the existence of an immaterial immortal soul for human beings, at least, um, the question of the intermediate stage is a non-starter. And that mm-hmm. for me, once I kind of came to my view of what I think the new Testament seems to teach, and there are a few verses that give me pause here or there, you know, like any good thing. Um, once I came to that conclusion, I said, well, the idea of an intermediate state or even going to heaven needs to be reframed, you know, because, you know, if we, and it, and it changed for me, the idea of what is, um, it's a bigger theological question is what does the resurrection actually do? You know what I mean? For someone who is uh, a physicalist, at least, uh, anthropologically a physicalist, if I die, I'm entirely, um, I'm waiting for resurrection. I literally go into the ground and I wait for God to raise me back to life. And which means that my anthropology is entirely contingent on my Christology. And so my Christology will inform my anthropology in the sense of without Christ, I'm literally walking warm food. 
<laughs> you know, and yeah. so the idea of an intermediate state for me is one of those things where um, I just I just don't see good te- biblical support for it, mm-hmm. and I just and I'm kind of skeptical of the need for it as well. I can understand maybe at a pastoral level, uh, as a pastor, I can understand the pastoral idea of you know my loved ones in heaven, or you know she he or she is in a better place, or or wherever you know she's with the angels, as I mm-hmm. as I heard used to hear a lot, and it always kind of made me. I wouldn't say bristle because that's not the right word because I understand people in grief and people need to hear certain words. And if you believe that, then that's fine. It's, you know, believe what you want, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I think for me, once I came to my vi- my view of uh, theological anthropology, I just kind of stopped. The idea of the intermediate state for me was just kind of, a, well, that, that can go over there. You know, I just, yeah. that's that's not even a question for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was kind of, once I... Kind of, and and that the golden nugget was I did research on the Greek word for suke or soul, and then uh-huh. and with maybe one or two exceptions, almost always refers to like breath or life or vitality or an aspect of the person. You know, so they sought, they were seeking my suke. They're seeking to kill me. You know, or mm-hmm. a thousand souls died. Suke's or su, su, I'm not going to Greek that up right now. A thousand a thousand souls died, but we know what that means. The a thousand people died. You know, suke is often just representing the whole person, you know, synecdoche or somatic or something like that. Like you know? inner being kind of. Yeah, inner being or just, you know, saying, well, his soul is grieved today. It's like, okay, well, we he's sad. We know what, we know what that phrase means. He means he's sad. Yeah. Or, you know, like your, heart, your heart is not yeah. separate from what you are. And That's right. You know, it's just kind and of so, a, I guess you could say a colloquialism. Yeah, it's, it's a saying. I mean, yeah. it's not that it's false. It's just it's no. communicating something in a metaphorical or emotional way. Like, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's like, I'm worshiping God. I'm exhorting yeah. God. I'm praying. I'm wailing. I'm all these sorts of things. We know what that's attempting to communicate. And often in kind of theological conversations, we have a lot of spiritual like baggage with certain words that kind of... It's like, I use the, I use the phrase with folks. Um, it's like, whenever... A, a, a theological position docks like a train docks at a station it's not just the engine you've got probably a thousand cars of baggage attached to the train so whenever we say the word you know in debates on sovereignty or um i don't know equality or whatever it's like there's a lot of freight attached to these words that we often assume in the conversation that makes for bad conversation because mm-hmm. we have to unless you unpack that thousand you know that thousand mile car or freight train you're not gonna have a good conversation so for me, just looking at how suke or pneuma, like spirit, breath, vitality, stuff like that, those words were used, I couldn't think of, I couldn't find a single unambiguous example where I was like, this means the immaterial, immortal, uh, and separable, because those are kind of the qualities of dualism, you know, separable, because somehow the body, though the body dies, the spirit or soul lives on somehow, you know, and so it's like, I didn't find a single text where that seemed to unambiguously kind of support those kind of premises. And so you can find one maybe where a premise is at least implied, perhaps, mm-hmm. but not where one is all three are kind of affirmed. And so I just found the case for it just not not compelling. And once I came to my view that the human person is, is a mortal physical creature content, uh, um, waiting for resurrection and new life, literally, um, that kind of that kind of solidified my view and it's something I could be changed on. There are philosophical issues that I still have with my own view. You know, the continuity of identity is an issue that I need, I think needs to be resolved. Um, but as a new Testament guy, I go, I think the scriptures kind of take us to here uh-huh. and then philosophy can take over, but 
if the philosophy basically goes, the biblical witness can go over there. And I'm like, all right, then no, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. We're not doing this thing where philosophy gets to, well, the Bible might say that, but we, we as philosophers have this. But then, of course, the biblical scholar has to go, well, we need some philosophy to help us make sense of all of this. And so I think the golden nugget for me was just realizing that I think the New Testament has a more materialistic anthropology. So just sort of the absence of what you understood the soul to be prior to that, once you researched it. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, kind of examining, you know, because um, I'm, I'm the kind of person that'll be, okay, I, I say I believe in the Trinity, for example, and I do. But what does that actually mean? You know, okay, let me go and actually look at this. And so I, I never went through a Unitarian phase, but I was like, okay, let's actually look at the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, it's actually, why do I actually believe this? What are what are good reasons to believe in this? And I came to the conclusion, yes, I think there are really good grounds textually and philosophically and theologically to affirm that God is triune and equal and reincarnation and so on and so forth. Um, but I'm always, you know, I get really read, I get really uncomfortable when people, um, whether, whether it's a majority report, theological perspective or minority report, um, I get really uncomfortable when I see kind of this assumption of theological truth without examining where that truth has come from and if it's true at all yeah and i see a lot i saw a lot of that with dualism was just well look the english verb their english word in my greek in my bible says soul and i'm like well what does that mean like we need to actually look at this and there was more the absence of good arguments or good textual arguments and i the plethora of just how human beings are described as soma sarks pneuma you know soul or 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 flesh you know these sorts Mm -hmm. of things um so if we're going to separate like those two things, then maybe we should separate all the things that are used to, to talk about humans, right? Like, Yeah, like look maybe. at each individual kind of word, kind of get a sense of what mm-hmm. it means, and then begin to kind of construct that, you know? Yeah. And there's and there's ways you can do that, and you can come to a dualist position. I'm not saying it's, like, impossible. Yeah. But, you know, looking at how the New Testament kind of talks about things, I mean, for example, the classic text is Romans 8, right? We long for the redemption of our bodies, in a dualist paradigm, right, you would expect something more soulish to be involved in that. You would expect Paul to kind of have more of a platonic or transcendent view. You know, like, somehow we go beyond the flesh, you know, kind of thing. Because uh, other Jewish philosophers at that time and Greco-Rome philosophers believed that. You know, the flesh is bad, throw it away, and we go to we go to spirit heaven. You know, like Casper the Ghost. Um, but... But for Paul, he, he goes, no, it's not we are redeemed from our bodies, it's our bodies themselves are redeemed or, or, or set free from the bondage of sin and death and decay mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which tells me that, okay, whatever we are as human, the physicality is never lost. And Paul doesn't insert dualistic language into that. And if you read, like, 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the whole treatise on resurrection, it always presumes whatever is raised is flesh, and there's no really kind of imputation or impartation of of soulishness or something going back into the flesh. You know what I mean? You know, kind of rejoining flesh and spirit versus flesh and soul. It's always the flesh is at the center of what God does. Now the flesh might be pneumatized, you know, the spirited or pneumatic, but but it's still it's an adjective describing flesh. So it's still flesh, at least in the sense that we can conceive as flesh. And so for me it was kind of re-understanding uh, Paul's view of resurrection that also kind of was another golden nugget that kind of kind of helped me get a sense of it yeah uh it's kind of like when god breathes life into adam like mm-hmm. the presumption is that the body was already there and he did something different to kind mm-hmm. of bring him to life um do you think i mean this is totally hypothetical this is just a fun question uh do sure. you think that perhaps 
that is only something that happens with regeneration or so, like not everyone is born with the same kind of life that Adam had in the garden uh, perhaps I, I, I get the sense uh, any life that comes post fall is automatically different than the Adamic and or Edenic mm -hmm. kind of Edenic reality you know and so whatever life happens now is contingent on the fall and so it'll we'll, it'll have kind of a marred or twisted or kind of broken aspect to it yeah um as far as regeneration goes um i i get the sense with with how paul speaks it's almost all all of his re regeneration talk or born again language or spirit or in christ language um always seems to presuppose the resurrection and so his resurrection discourses, you know, whatever he says in Romans 5 is contingent upon Jesus Christ being raised in power by the Spirit designated as Son of God, you know, in Romans 1, you know, 1 to 4. And so whatever follows from that is contingent on resurrection and new life. And I think in many sense, um, if we believe that Christianity is good for the world, that it promotes human flourishing and promotes all these sorts of good, social goods and interpersonal goods, um, then it's not just mere regeneration, although it certainly would include that. It would include a whole new way of being human, mm -hmm. and that's kind of where, and that's where I take the the idea of new life literally, because it's like you know the idea of baptized into his death and being reemerged out of you know say Romans six or Colossians three back into Christ for new life, and I mean that literally because <laughs> the old you has been crucified and crushed and thrown away. It's mm -hmm. you know, and I think um, I think that'll preach. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I heard you say that on a podcast recently. <laughs> I preach. probably did. I don't remember. <laughs> um, I want to go back to uh, something you said. I believe you said the words continuity of identity. Mm, Is yeah. that what you said? So, um, so you mentioned like that. that that's an area where more work needs to be done. Tell me, tell mm -hmm. me more about that. Yeah, and so the idea is, and this is a philosophical. It's the problem of um, identity, and so. Um, Without a soul, and, and I'm going to use a crude analogy, but a, a soul being a flash drive and the computer being the body, okay. you know, you need, you know, so let's say the computer, you know, let's say this thingy is a flash drive. Um, all the memory and stuff on the computer is stored in here and you can't access it without this. And this thing also powers it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a battery USB hard drive thingy. The computer works perfectly if you insert it and it comes to life and all that sort of stuff um the the issue that the problem of the continuity identity basically says um the soul functions like this and so you have a very easy solution to the problem of uh are you uh how do how can you have uh identity memory um all that sort of stuff with a purely materialistic anthropology because uh that would essentially be a clone thing you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so you can see kind of the issue with that because the dualist can say you've got this click and that solves it um and so that's a problem for for me just philosophically because i have to conceive of a way that there can be continuity between uh the physical death and the physical resurrection what what is raised you mm -hmm. know kind of thing and one the idea of it being a clone personally doesn't bother me because i'm like i'll be a new creation with god and everyone Will I care if I'm a clone? Will I even know or think about that? Probably not. But for some reason, it taxes philosophers on this side of the resurrection, so it's something that needs to be dealt with. Um, but I also point out that this idea is, one, I argue this is not biblical. 
this idea is not biblical. So for the philosopher, I kind of I basically look at my philosopher friend. You're positing something very ad hoc to solve a problem that you see, and I grant, but the solution does not is not derived from the text. Mm-hmm. And so there's that kind of disconnect I see between philosophers and and biblical you know, biblical scholars and theologians and stuff. So the way to solve it, and I think this also has an issue too, because if you have this, why do you need a computer? You know, if the computer yeah. is utterly contingent on this, is frail and mortal and all these sorts of things. And if you listen to some, the way some dualist preachers talk, or theologians even, the body is almost this horrific thing that, boy, I can't wait to get a he- go to heaven and get a new one. Yeah. The body's like a rental car, <laughs> you know? And I just kind of go, that is not the view of the body of the New Testament. Yeah. And, I, and so I, th- I, re- I, th- I challenge my dualistic philosopher friends to basically go, this needs to be redefined entirely. Because this is not a biblical thing. Well, I don't know if your analogy meant for this, but um, the flash drive is also useless on its own <laughs> in, in, in your analogy. So, so okay. I, I'm not sure if you meant for that. Like, both well, of these things don't function to their fullest extent apart from each other. And they yeah. really only, even though they are two different things, they really only uh, work together perfectly. And I, I think it's called substance dualism, where that, that, would be a that is substance dualism. Yeah, right? so you, you are a body um, and a soul, but they're never really going to function apart from each other. Yeah, um, and that's that's true. That's a good point because you've got this sense of, because um, yeah, they, they want to say, and and I, I applaud them for this. I don't think they can do it consistently, but they want they don't want to basically turn into Gnostics. Basically, they don't yeah. want to throw the body away. The problem is, um, if everything is in here. And it can you can have everything pulled from the the computer, the brain, the mind into this. You still have the problem with the continuity of identity because unless you're willing to say the body is entirely irrelevant to this, some of this is contingent on the body. And so you've got the problem of the body being relevant to this and having input into this. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where I kind of look at my substance dualist friends. I'm like, you're positing the idea of a soul as kind of, and it's crude analogy. They may not accept it. I could think of an, a, a nicer one, but it's just, I think it works. You could posit that this works, but you still, like, unless you're willing to say um, some memories stay with the body or are stored with the body and needs to be powered by this, um, then fine. But then you still have the problem of the soul. You know, you still have the problem of basically asserting that the soul is something that. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm not maybe I'm wound myself in a circle here trying to make my point so, so sorry for that I think the issue <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it boils down to it maybe a better way of saying it is um, dualists don't want to throw the body away but they have everything they need in this and so I kind of go okay fine but then the issue then becomes if you've got so the body over here, you still have to deal with the problem of the continuity of identity because of how this relates to the body. Mm-hmm. And the body, you believe, is raised. And so it's still a continuity of identity problem because how this relates to the flesh is still a problem. Because what's raised is not, they, you know, is still something from the dead, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And so it's not as if just plugging the soul back in or putting the soul back into the body solves the problem. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I yeah. think that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. And so it's it's uh, I, and I made this point to a friend of mine who's an expert in philosophy, and I'm uh, and way smarter than me. And I was like, so the problem of continuity of identity is a problem for anyone who believes in the resurrection of the body. 
not a, and that's that's a Christian problem. Yeah, and it may be uniquely difficult for a physicalist like myself to explain. Fair enough, but let's not. And I tell my dualist friends, but don't kind of toss all of that on us as if it's our problem to solve. It's no, you got to solve this too. This mm-hmm. is a problem philosophically at least because Paul I mean for you read first Corinthians 15 he didn't have a problem talking about this you know the seed grows into the tree that's a metaphor for resurrection and identity yeah. problem solved how the philosophers come along and say well how does this work numerically and all this I'm like that's on y'all to figure out mm-hmm. and that's about as far as I can but I that's how I see the problem of the continuity of identity it's it's a problem for those who have philosophical issues with identity and resurrection and stuff like that Whereas I, it's interesting to me, it's not a problem for Paul. The problem is Paul doesn't explain metaphysically and philosophically how it all works. It's just on the power of God. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be helpful to back up, and I'll just sort of state uh, why I'm skeptical of the soul in the intermediate mm-hmm. state, and then if there's anything that you can add or clarify on, on my sure. part, then yeah. uh, feel free to speak up. Um the Bible is pretty clear that we're judged right after we die. Uh, judgment comes at the second coming of Christ, at the end of the world, basically. Um, so the only way for those things to make sense is if we're essentially kind of offline until uh, the second coming, until the resurrection, which happens at the same time as the judgment, pretty mm-hmm. clearly in the Bible, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, and then also the, uh, I would say, the issue of everything Paul says about the body and the importance of the resurrection, and then he spends about 2,000 years as a disembodied spirit, um, doesn't, doesn't add up to me. Um, so uh, I think this is a much bigger problem for an all-millennialist because so much of their fulfillment of the millennium is wrapped up in the intermediate state and kind of metaphysical realities but for me as a post-millennialist uh, I don't really have that problem so to me it's kind of take it or leave it with the soul like I, I know it's <laughs> it's uh, obviously tradition um, mm-hmm. and the intermediate state is tradition but I am not seeing like convincing evidence except for a few statements in the Bible uh, which you have explained to me before um, such as Paul saying to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. Uh, this is apparently a Greek euphemism for death, kind of. I would argue. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I think the, the, the next biggest one would probably be um, Jesus saying, uh, don't fear man who can kill the body, but fear uh, God who can kill the body and the soul and destroy them in hell. Um, mm-hmm. what, what would you say about that verse? Yeah, he he seems to delineate them. Yeah, he he does, and it's one of those verses where I'm like, that's an it's an interesting. um, Let me actually pull it up. Let me look at this real quick. Uh, It's an interesting phrase because that sort of thing doesn't really occur in Matthew. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's one of those where it's like, oh, that's interesting. Um, And Matthew, and this is going to sound weird, but Matthew is not a very platonic. uh, Platonic. If you want, if you would expect something like this from the Gospel of John, you know Uh what I mean. so let me do not fear uh, from the body, but uh, yeah. So suke in here, uh, that's a Greek word that's used for, for soul. Um, if we look at it, I'm just going to pull up the English real quick just so I, can, I don't want to have to translate on the fly again. I've done that once or twice, and I, all I need is a professor of mine to look at it and go, oh my gosh, I failed my, I, you failed me. Um, 
Okay, yeah, so do not fear from the one who got to kill. But, fear, but rather fear the one who has the power to uh, slay or kill. Um, and here's the thing, too. So, okay, so two things. First is Apollea, or, or Apollumi, it's the verb there for destroy. Um, almost always, I mean, when in referring to um, eight personal agents, whether um, um, human or subhuman or superhuman or extrahuman, almost always seems to refer to slaying or killing. Mm hmm. And so, for example, you can see this used, and uh, it's the same word group. It's used uh, to try and kill baby uh, Jesus as a child in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. You know, they, he wanted to apollumi or apollea. Herod tried to kill Jesus. And so the word for destroy or slay or kill uh, seems to presuppose a material kind of component. Like it's something is actually being killed. And so if we believe in an immortal, immaterial, separable soul, how do you kill an immortal, immaterial, separable soul? I mean, God could probably figure out a way, but it's kind of one of those weird metaphysical kind of like, oh, wait, how does that work? And that was something I posited to a friend of mine who's a very strong dualist, and incidentally is not an annihilationist. And I was like, but the text literally says, slay the soul. Like, he can actually, God can actually slay it and kill it. And I was like, how does that work? And he's kind of, to his credit, I love the guy, but he kind of hemed and hawed a little bit. And I was like, well, okay, I was kind of a jerk to bring up a question that was really difficult for you, so I'm sorry. You know, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But and so that might be my first kind of thought was looking at going like, okay so slayer kill in Gehenna or hell or whatever seems to presuppose some sort of physicality or material materialistic kind of thing because you can't kill something that is immaterial you know um, so um, and there was another thing in here I thought was really curious um, I, I need to go and find it neither father and of course as soon as I go looking for it I can't find it but anyway um, yeah I'm looking for can body and soul so yeah and soul here um, I think in Matthew's gospel let me look up suke in Matthew's gospel real quick I'll just pull it up yep uh, yep trying to actually yeah here we go even better the one seeking the suke of the child in Matthew 2:20. They're, then that, but that's the verse they were trying to kill Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, that's Herod, you know, trying to um, slay the child. And then um, in Matthew six twenty five, uh, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. So suke again. So the suke drinks and eats, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And then Matthew ten twenty eight. But let's push that away for a sec. And then in the same discourse, there it is. I was I didn't scroll far enough. Um, whoever finds uh, his or her life will lose it. Suke. But the one, and whoever loses their life uh, on account of me will find it. And that's suke again. Mm -hmm. And so I get the sense that suke here is, you might say, and I, I'm trying to remember exactly what a professor of mine mentioned. He said, suke kind of refers to not the soul or spirit in the way we think of it, but kind of, you might say, life essence or inner being or inner self. You know, that um, the thing that animates you, um, vitality you know um and so it's it's not like soul and body but it's kind of body and soul or body and suke or soma and suke is kind of being referring to the same thing but mm -hmm. maybe different aspects of it suke being kind of um you might say um like the inner self or mind or or like you said earlier emotion or heart almost mm -hmm. you know that my soul magnifies the lord so maybe kind of maybe that sort of element of it, of, of the human person, uh, versus the, you know, just the body, the, the flesh, the, you know, the torso being stabbed or slayed or killed or something like that. Um, and it's interestingly that 
Um, they can, the thing is, and this is in a martyr discourse, you know, and don't fear those who can kill the body but can't take away your, your vitality or your, you might even say your eschatological life. You know, because the very thing is, you know, whoever loses their suke will find it for my mm -hmm. sake. And so that seems to imply some sort of eschatological resurrection kind of idea, kind of, I don't know if it works with a post-millennial view. I don't have, I really, that's one, it's weird. I don't have a view of the millennium because um, in my mind, again, it's, it's, uh, I, I just don't see it as a New Testament question. I think it's a later thing people like to argue about. And I think, I mean, I've heard really good arguments like for years about for post-millennialism and stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I think it's, it's all this is very reasonable. Um, just at the end of the day, I'm like, it's, why doesn't my car have wings? And I'm like, well, the car the New Testament doesn't have wings because it's a car. It, it drives. It's yeah. not concerned with flying. And so it's, it's, it's one of those weird kind of, I view it as a separate question. But I, I wonder if, I think with that kind of idea, though, with um, Suke in Matthew ten twenty eight being a reference to eschatological life and future resurrection life, I wonder, I think that actually might work really well in kind of your post-millennium mm -hmm. kind of scheme. And so that's, that's how I would read uh, or interpret Matthew ten twenty eight. And I'm curious to know if that makes sense of your view with postmillennialism, because it, it sounds like if it's life, there's referring to an eschatological present, yeah. yes, now, but also that thing in the future, but it's also kind of worked in now. Mm -hmm. But how does that work? Does that am I representing your view correctly? Or yeah, I, I don't see why not. Um, uh, basically, <laughs> it would it would be when you say eschatological life, you mean like they can't uh, kill you forever like yeah, you're going to be exactly. resurrected on the last day yeah. uh yeah so there's there's two basic uh versions of post-millennialism there's there's the one the more classical view that says uh there there is going to be a literal thousand years and we don't know when and it's still some some time off in the future but Jesus comes back after that. And then the more contemporary view is that everything between the first and second coming is the millennium. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see why not. Um, uh, it's, it's basically that idea and uh, the fact that the kingdom is growing and spreading. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically the whole view. Uh, obviously, there's there's little things that define it, but uh, that would be the main uh, point of contention from any other view of eschatology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that 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 works. Um, yeah, well, I think it, it uh, works really well in Matthew too. Like especially because yeah. I'm reading, I'm just looking at Suke like in Matthew right now, and it, you see all this stuff. What does it profit a person if uh, he or she gains the whole world and forfeits their Suke? Mm -hmm. But whoever uh, but whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their, their life for me will find it. So mm -hmm. that's, I'm like, that's not eschatological in the sense of future thingy that we just project into the nebula of time. It's, it's present hope for the future, not for the future. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I think that kind of, I think that kind of makes sense of Matthew's kind of already not yet kind of kingdom mentality and, and yeah. the nations going, going out to the nations and so on and so forth. So yeah. that's kind of how I interpret it. And I can see why a dualist would be like, mm, but I'm like, I think in the context of Matthew's gospel, I think that makes a lot more sense. So what do you, what do you think about, uh, from a traditional standpoint, um, it's not that uh, church history is completely bereft of, of people who don't believe in the intermediate state, but uh, generally the more traditional view is, has been an intermediate state. Um, is this something that, that doesn't bother you at all or something that you've kind of had to reckon with a little bit and ultimately... If you believe uh, yeah. you're right, then you just have to be okay with that, you know. Well, and it's it's a good, really good question. Um, 
Because there are certain things that I, I do hold that I'm a minority view in, in kind of the history of the church. Um, for example, like women in ministry. Mo- for most of the church's history, I would argue the first hundred years tend to, I would argue you can find this in the first hundred years of the church, but and snippets throughout. Um, but uh, women's ordination is not the majority view. And if we, you know, Roman Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox, although some Eastern Orthodox are cool with it, and some Protestants are cool with it, but by and large, it's probably 60-40 in the history of the church mm. women's ordination um and so that's something where i'm in the minority and that's i come there because i think the bible teaches it and so it's one of those where it's like, okay i can i'm willing to kind of buck tradition on that because it's not in my mind an essential doctrine of the faith it's an essential doctrine for orthopraxy and how you live out the life in the church because you know that is a huge issue in the life of the church but it's not a heaven or hell issue right, to use those phrases loosely um there are certain things where I get, I would be very uncomfortable bucking tradition on. So the doctrine of the Trinity, anything mm-hmm. that I find that if I were to object anything in the Nicene Creed, for example, I would be very uncomfortable doing that, and I don't think I could mm-hmm. um, without calling my, without basically calling into question my own. Um, I don't want to say salvation, but my own faith. You know, there are certain things I go. The Nicene Creed. You believe the Nicene Creed. You want to be a Christian. You believe in the Nicene Creed. That is what we confess, and that's what Christians have always confessed. All Orthodox Christians ever have confessed the Nicene Creed. Um, since it's been instantiated, of course, we, you know, that took a little while for that to come around. Is um, that like three twenty-five, three twenty-five, three eighty-one? Yeah, okay. but I mean, they were formulating stuff and arguing. You can find. I mean, the Gospel of John is basically yeah. the Nicene Creed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. We, it's not like this stuff begins with the creeds. It's like it's, it's no, no, obviously no. back in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. you know it's something that I believe that has been the seeds of it were all in Scripture and came fully to blossom in in the Nicene Creed. Yeah. Um, but I, so yeah, and so with this sort of thing, I, I'm of two minds up because I don't see it as being, I don't see it as attested in the Nicene Creed. So I think it's an issue where I'm like, yeah, I can, I can believe this with, and be fine holding this, um, because I don't see it as taught explicitly in the Nicene Creed. You know, same with the doctrine of hell. You know, the doctrine of hell is not spelled out in the Nicene Creed. You know, and one of, and a lot of church fathers were universalists were involved in the formation of the Nicene Creed. Um, and so it's one of those where I'm like, okay, so that's, I can hold this, whatever view I hold in good conscience, because it's not addressed in that creed. It doesn't mean, you know, if you believe something that contradicts the creed, that's different. You know, would it go against the spirit of the creed to believe that? Then probably I'd have an issue with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but yeah, m- knowing that, and the issue for me is more a matter of, and I get uncomfortable with this, um, is, um, uh, teaching jobs. I want to be a teacher someday, you know, a theology prof and stuff mm-hmm. like that, um, that might be that is where more uh, I see more of an issue um, personally, just because um, a lot of statements of faith have something like that. Um, but I mean, I guess in the, in the grand scheme of things, no, um, I'm willing to buck tradition on some things, but on other things, I'm very uh, reticent to do so. But on this, I'm like, mm-hmm. I just think this is what the Bible teaches, and I can be convinced otherwise. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Um maybe you've got an opinion on this, maybe not. Do you, what, what role would you say the Holy Spirit is playing in uh, an individual's interpretation of Scripture? Mm-hmm. And would you say uh, that the Holy Spirit would probably be informing the majority views? I mean, obviously there's a few that you don't hold to, so you wouldn't say that, but uh, do you think uh, there would be a problem for our understanding of the Holy Spirit illuminating Scripture if a majority view was wrong. 
It's a good question. Such, such as the traditional view of hell. Yeah. Uh, and for the for the one person who might be freaking out and writing <laughs> YouTube comments, I'm not a universalist. There yeah. you go. No, that's true. I'm not, that's not, I'm, I'm not a universalist. Nobody here is a universalist. <laughs> no. Um, it's a good question, because on the one hand, um, I do think the Spirit guides... I do think the spirit informs us, um, and I do think the spirit was involved in uh, in a lot of things. Um, I'm not, and I, I suppose it might come down to your view of anthropology and, and will and agent, human will and agency. Um, I think sometimes people just miss what the spirit's saying, and um, and I don't know if that's a Calvinist Arminian thing or just a matter of sometimes the spirit speaks very quietly and you have to be listening. Um, and we all have biases when we come to the text. Like, it's not as if we can just open up the Bible and be like, oh, I'm a Wesleyan, even though I've never heard a single thing about this. Like, that's not how any theological formation works. It's, that's just, we're not blank slates. You know, we just, we, that's just not how it works. And so on the one hand, I think part of it is, is bias, you know, and tradition. And these, these views get reinforced over and over and over. And um, that happens. But I, I don't know. I, I don't. I suppose I, I don't see, I see the Spirit's role is not necessarily in the promulgation of doctrine, although I do think the Spirit's involved in that. I see the Spirit's role in more formation. And so I, I look at the life lived by the saints of old, you know, Origen, uh, Athanasius, Martin Luther. Oh, Martin Luther is probably not the greatest example of <laughs> the most wonderful people, but, uh, but you know, um, uh, Julian of Norwich, um, John Stott, you know, you look at, you know, people that have believed such things throughout their lives, and I go, okay, are they not listening to the Spirit, or is it perchance that they just got stuff wrong, in spite of the Spirit? Yeah. And, you know, um, I don't, maybe it just might be me, I don't know if the quest for a perfect theology is what we should be doing, and so that's why I give a lot of leeway for theologi theological error, or theological differences. Um, but I, yeah, I think the role of the Spirit is not, is preserving the essentials of the faith, and what other, what other things get tweaked or wrong or misread due to human bias or tradition or error or whatever, um, I don't see it as being a huge issue because I don't see the Spirit uh, getting stuff wrong when it comes to the core of the faith. Yeah, yeah, that's just uh, something I've heard, so I, I figured I'd get your take on it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe the Holy Spirit speaks directly to anyone. I, I believe that you're... Um, reading scripture you're reading the word of god and the spirit might uh illuminate things to you mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean like almost everyone has some view that that doesn't like fall right in line with with all of history or or the majority yeah. of the church so i mean to to make any sort of an argument that the spirit is like leading two different people in two different ways or is you know incapable of you know, illuminating something a certain way, like whatever, you know, argument you would make, uh, I think you're, you're getting into dangerous territory there. Uh, and I, I think, um, you know, biblical inerrancy might even be at risk if, if that was your view. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's just something I've well, heard. So you and um, I come out of Calvary, you and I come out of Calvary Chapel backgrounds and yeah. to, it's like, the same Calvary Chapel. Wrong? The same Calvary Chapel. Yeah. And so it's like you kind of look and go, okay, were they just not listening to the Spirit? Or were they just wrong? And it's like, I yeah. tend to think, you know, they got some stuff right. 
Like they, they're, they're not Trinitarian heretics. So okay, that's pretty good. Um, uh, did they get a bunch of? St- well, some of them, I'm sure. Are pretty, I'm sure some of them are subordinationists in that. Yeah, I'm not, not a fan, fan of that. Not a fan. Uh, <laughs> Glad to hear but, you say that. <laughs> um, I, I know. I know. No, I know. no way, Wayne. No way, yeah. Wayne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no way, Wayne. Nope. That is Joe yeah. Thorne at his best. Mm-hmm. He, he started that, right? No way, Wayne. <laughs> I think so. And I actually, I wrote a, Allison and I wrote a critical review of Wayne's new uh, system, his second edition that just got re. Oh, got really? Released. I didn't know about that. We we published that. It was just on his stuff on the Trinity and women. Uh-huh. We're like, okay, let's let's actually look at these two things because that's all yeah. Wayne is basically known for. No one cares what Wayne has to say basically about anything else. <laughs> and so we re- we reviewed and we're like, boy, this guy has not read a single, has not engaged well with a lot of people. This is not a very good book. <laughs> I, I remember reading his stuff on eschatology and uh he was addressing how how some people will mention how the thousand year uh millennium every millennium is a thousand years what am i saying uh the the millennium in in revelation 20 is only mentioned once now i i believe it's mentioned in other ways and other places without the the number attached to it but he says um you can't argue premillennialism is false just because the Bible only mentions it once because how many times does the Bible have to say something to be true? And it's like, okay, if I don't look into that at all, that's a very good argument. <laughs> but, right, that's but it's true. kind of a weak argument if you actually had to deal with an amillennialist or a postmillennialist or uh, something. What is, like, he? is he? Is he a, he's not dispensational, is he? Is he no, an he's a historic premill. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, anyways, I I, re- I think I respect every eschatological eschatological view, except for dispensationalism. I I'd say the I, I lately I've I've been agreeing with the pre mills more than the ah mills because mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of reading more into my own view about post mill. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm seeing like the the major problems, namely with uh, so much of Ah Mill's um, fulfillments being in the intermediate state and the like heart of the church, like the hearts of believers and mm-hmm. stuff like Jesus yep. is reigning in your heart, which like they don't all say that, but that's that's prevalent in in that world. Yeah. And and I'm just like, man, really? That's that's what that's what it's all about, huh? <laughs> so anyway, very personal. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> have you ever seen an evening of eschatology? Is that with um, John Piper Hamilton, and Hamilton, Hamilton and Doug Wilson and that was and all this. that was so boring to watch. <laughs> I love that one mainly because Doug Wilson is just making hilarious jokes through the whole thing. Um, like uh, you know, you serve God in your way, and I serve Him in His way. <laughs> yeah. know, just saying stuff like that throughout the whole thing. But I, I watch it every couple of years, and uh, I always agree with Sam Storms and Doug Wilson because they're the preterists and. Um, mm-hmm. I watched it a couple weeks ago, and I was actually like more with Hamilton and Wilson, and Sam Storms was the one coming across kind of, kind of out there to me. So it's it's weird yeah. how my view has kind of evolved over time. But uh, how how the heck did I get on this conversation? Oh, Wayne Grudem. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we were, no way, Wayne. We were talking about him. <laughs> what were you saying about Wayne Grudem? Oh, just you know his stuff on the trip. We we got off on the subordinationist tick. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Wayne. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Keep your keep your nasty hands off my Trinity. <laughs> oh, that's a meme. If I've no, ever. No, just keep your hands off my Trinity. Like go away. <laughs> like, don't, the Trinity's not your social agenda. Go away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is weird to me how um, actually uh, 
Matthew Barrett uh, talked about this in his book, Simply Trinity. It was really good mm-hmm. how uh, all the different, like, political or, uh, you know, just all the different causes that have kind of taken the Trinity to kind of support their cause, whether mm-hmm. it be complementarianism or egalitarianism yep. or environmentalism or, mm-hmm. you know, I- anything. And, and he just spent a good chapter, like, talking about all the different ways people have appropriated the Trinity to just sort of support their yep. their position and and I think that that came to its worst uh, kind of apex in uh, the Nashville statement <laughs> I think which um, you know whatever I mean like I, I get what they were doing I, I didn't mm-hmm. disagree with any of the stances on like homosexuality and stuff but like toward the back half of that statement they just got so specific on like the subordination of the sun in order to support all these different things and it just seems yeah. so unnecessary and so yeah well uh, it's just i don't know pe- people and that's the thing that annoys me just um it's like all right like if the bible is not enough to make your point and you gotta just go hey uh let's shoehorn the trinity into our politics and i'm like as a Baptist, my first thought was, ew. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and this this might just boil down to, and this is something I think Wayne does specifically, although I think his kind of way of doing theology is on its way out. Um, I think it's this idea of relation um, to worldly powers, because everything is about kind of having a sense of power, who's in charge, who's this and this and this and this. And I just kind of go, my friend uh, Dan Morrison, he's an Anglican minister, his degree in New Testament linguistics, brilliant guy. And he made this point, and there's this idea, I think, in Christian theology, or at least in some Christian circles, where um, theological policing is at the heart of kind of what they do. It's not, and there are certain things you want to make sure, you know, we believe in the Trinity, deity of Christ, on and so forth. Um, but I've noticed there's a lot of seeking of worldly power, and the trinity is often used to kind of shoehorn our way into whether it's liberation theology or political theology or mm-hmm. or whatever and at the end of the day i just kind of sit back and i quote dan morrison and go look the harlot in the book of revelation rides the beast the bride of christ does not and like you that. can you can <laughs> interpret that many different ways if you know what i mean oh my wheels are already turning in the ways but, that i can use that <laughs> but that's the point it's the yeah. church should not be going to the world and going like ah we can use our doctrine of the trinity to corporatize coca-cola into political advertisements for this and it's just kind of like mm-hmm. that's not how that's not how the church does theology we do not yeah. do theology like that. Wait, think, wait, are, so, are you saying we're not going to take over the Republican Party so that Trump can hang all the pedophiles and, and we can usher in the millennium? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I forgot that stuff exists. Uh, uh, all yeah. I'll say, I'll just say it again: the harlot rides the beast. There you go. The bride of Christ does not. That's that's another great quote. You got two in under ten minutes, man. Mm-hmm. Wayne Gruden, keep your hands off my Trinity. Get your dirty hands off my Trinity. I am making a meme of that. <laughs> and just Dan Morrison, yeah. Doctor Dan, Reverend Doctor Dan Morrison. Reverend I should Dr. say he just Dan. got ordained. And like he'd be that. a great interview if you want to have on someone who's an expert in the Book of Revelation. He did his really? stuff on linguistics. Yeah, Ooh. he's brilliant. And I don't know what he believes on when it, if yeah. he even thinks about the Millennium debate. I think he's just kind of like that's weird. Like he comes from an Assemblies of God background, so I think he's a little oh, like okay. eh, he's a little eh, about 
those sorts of questions. So right. I don't know if you'd be up for that, but yeah, I you know the only Anglicans I really know of are like John Stott, and I think C.S. Lewis was an Anglican. So uh, this Michael Bird, my Doctor Father's uh, Doctor Father's uh, Anglican. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have I really don't know much about the dogmatics of Anglicanism, uh, but I am about to get into a Revelation study. I, I got like four or five books, and I'm gonna go through as slowly as I can. <laughs> Just go like one chapter a week. Um, so yeah, that. that I, I should try to make that happen. <laughs> well, is that in line with a certain pastor here in Southern California who's doing his own preaching study on you it? Know, totally coincidental. It's so weird. Uh, sure. No, no, no. It really is. I, I was, like I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I, know, I know you're not really arguing with me, but I was like, um, you know, I, I want to. I, I read my Bible and then I study a book, and I read my Bible mm -hmm. and I study a book. And so last time mm -hmm. I did Ephesians, and I was like, all right, what should I study? You know, I'm like a month out from finishing my Bible again. So, mm -hmm. um, what do I have like the most books on? I got like five or six books on Revelation. So I'm like, I should do that one next, just to get through these books that I haven't read. And then, yeah. uh, and then I saw Chris was going to teach on it, and so I was like. I'm going to save all those podcasts in my feed until I'm going through it for myself so I can listen to them all. But I, uh, I sent him a meme that I made. It was the graphic that he made for Revelation for King's mm -hmm. Cross. And then right underneath it, it was Jeff Goldblum in the back of the Jeep going, you did it, you crazy son of a bitch, you did it. <laughs> he did it. He did it. <laughs> uh, I love that. Anyways, yeah, so coincidence. I, I still, I still get his sermons and podcasts. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm I'm a little behind. I'm I'm like catching up on January, but uh, I still appreciate his his teaching so much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been going for almost an hour. So how about we wrap up with uh, for anyone who thinks you're an idiot for everything that you've said in the last mm -hmm. <laughs> hour? What what would you have to graciously approach a brother or sister in Christ who is disagreeing um, with you. Look, okay, at the end of the day, if I'm wrong, no major Christian doctrine is challenged, at least in my view. Um, and if I'm wrong, then the history of the church has been correct on this secondary topic, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm wrong, then we haven't lost the resurrection of Jesus. Um, if I'm right, though, then we've got to really reflect the New Testament's vision of human anthropology. Um, we need to really reflect on the nature of resurrection and why that's at the center of our faith. Um, because if Christ isn't raised, there's nothing to argue about because you don't have a New Testament to argue about anything with. It's Jesus is raised and then things got written about him. So Jesus is at the center and his resurrection is our resurrection. Um, and it means that how we treat our bodies matters how we, I mean, even eating, drinking, how we treat one another, how we view our sex lives, uh, what we look at, how we treat our minds, um, that's all important. Mm -hmm. Because it tells us that it's not as if our bodies are rental cars. Our bodies are going to be brought, given back to us. Um, and it does mean that how we have treated our body, I mean, I mean, there's a reason the New Testament talks about often deeds done in the body or you might even say with the body or by the body or through the body mm -hmm. um, and we give an account for that and so it's like even our bodies themselves are a testament to God's judgment and his resurrection power 
Yeah. Uh, we will be judged by the things we do with our bodies. Yeah. Paul talks and about joining uh, the spirit of Christ to a prostitute with your body. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so there, and, there's obviously some stake in it. Yep. And so it's not like you just get a new one, like a new car. It's your, your body is going to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the job of the church in terms of sanctification and holiness and glorification, that we, uh, through the Spirit and through the local church, be involved with it for the sake of putting to death the sins and deeds of the body so that the body can thrive and, um, wait and, and be glorified and all that sort of stuff. And so, um, you know, someone from the Wesleyan or Methodist perspective, um, sanctification is a huge deal. And um, the life of holiness is, uh, it's not to say that other Christians don't believe in this or anything like that, but um, there's a special emphasis in Wesleyan kind of circles. And, how you treat your body and other bodies with your body is just of utmost importance because that tells you how much God loves you and how much you are to love your neighbor. And if you use your body as your body for the sake of oppressing other people or being violent or racist or sexist or all the other things or just greed or avarice or stupidity or narcissism or whatever, um, we'll be judged by that. And I think Christians need to remember that we, we have to stand before the throne too. And there is the blood of Christ as our place where mercy is found, but it's not as if we don't have to answer for deeds done in the flesh, especially towards others. And so I think... um, Let's say every idle word. Yep. And so we will give an account, and our bodies will have to give an account as well for what we've done with them and through them. And that means treat yourselves right by the Spirit. Yeah. You do have a section of your book, uh, The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, by Nicholas Rudolph Quint. Uh, <laughs> you, you do have a section in your book um, about this, about the soul and the intermediate state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you get into the intermediate state, actually, but you talk about the soul. No, not, not the, I, basically it comes up to the thing of, there's, I don't even think I even mentioned the intermediate state, because okay. it's, 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 it's not that it's irrelevant, but it is irrelevant, if, if you go with me on my view of anthropology. Yeah, um, but you know it's like a whole chapter dedicated to to that, and it's really good. So um, okay. if I if would that tweak book... a lot of stuff I said, oh, <laughs> I read really? that section, I was like, yeah, I would tweak. I, yeah. I'd be less, I'd be less dogmatic about it because I think I've sure. I've softened a bit on a bunch of stuff. I'm like, man, I just if I could redo the whole book, I would. I I, really? I still think what I wrote is true. Yeah, but it's I would be a lot less dogmatic and snarly about some of the stuff I said. Fair enough. Uh, regardless of how you feel about the book. <laughs> if, if that's on Christian Book, there's going to be a Christian Book affiliate link in the show notes where you can get that book. Uh, are, there, are there any other books that you would recommend if someone wanted to dive into this topic more? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. From there's either one... perspective, really. Well, I mean, it, it, this is going to sound terrible, and I don't mean it to sound terrible, but yeah. if you pick up any systematic theology from an evangelical perspective, Millard Erickson... Um, Mike Bird, who's really good. Um, I'm trying to think of other. I'm trying not to say Wayne Grudem because that's the first <laughs> thing everyone thinks about. But you know, you pick up uh, Burkoff or Bob Inc. or any of the old performers or anything like that. John uh, Frame, more, right behind John you. Frame, John Stott's theology. Um, you pick up any one of them. Almost all of them are a form of dualist, <laughs> and so you'll they'll they'll talk about it and they'll give kind of thoughts on it. Um, for a for a for a New Testament perspective, let me, it's, the author is, he's a professor at Fuller, he's a New Testament guy, uh, but he's also done graduate work in, I think, neuroscience. Um, excuse me. 
Um, he's an expert in Luke Acts, and up oh, that's it. It's um, Joel Green, okay. and the book is called uh, Body, Soul, and Human Life, and it's not as in depth um, as I would like, but it's it's a it's a solid you know two hundred forty pages, so it's not a, a massive tome. Um, he gets into kind of the issues of neuroscience. Um, he comes from a, a Methodist evangelical Methodist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about, uh, Paul, um, he talks about other kind of issues of anthropology. Um, it's a, it's an interesting, and he goes into some aspects of kind of the, the first Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Um, not as much, but it's not an old Testament book. So yeah, chapter one is the Bible, the natural sciences and the human person. So he talks kind of about biblical theology and science and Mm -hmm. why these things matter. Then the next one is, yeah, what does it mean to be human? So he looks at a text in Genesis and Ephesians and he talks about sin and freedom then he talks about um, conversion and how that works with science and um, the soul and stuff in Luke Acts. And then the final chapter is the really good one. It's on the resurrection of the body in um, Corinthians and in Luke. And it's, it's a, it's, it's, it'll, it help. I mean, that's the thing with, it helps to know Greek, but that you won't be hindered by the reading without, by not knowing Greek. Okay. Um, so yeah, body, soul, and human life by Joel Green. And he responds to another guy, John Cooper, who teaches at, I want to say Calvin seminary, who wrote a pretty, um, tendentious. I'm being nice. I, I engage with his book and in, in my book, he's one of my main in, uh, opponents. I guess my interlocutors. I guess mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's it's called bodies. I forget exactly what Cooper's book is, but it's. I don't think it's a very good book because I think basically he's operating. This is where I get kind of annoyed by certain segments of my reforms friends. Is I've got the Westminster Confession. Don't confuse me with Scripture. And I see, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen with other traditions or other people, but certain sections of reforms, the reform side of the family, like, I don't care about the London Baptist, London Baptist Confession. Let's talk about this right here. And every every true reform person is like, heck yeah, give me yeah. my Bible, let's go. But yeah. there are certain people where it's like, I got my confession, don't confuse me with any other stuff. And I'm like, oh, come on, let's go. Um, but I forget what Cooper's book is, but I mean, if you pick up any systematic theology text, you'll, you'll find a conversation on it, most likely from an evangelical dualist perspective. And Joel's yeah. probably a good antidote to that. And Joel's also a very fun writer. Yeah. So You actually won't always, because Wayne Grudem's treatment of your view was about that big. <laughs> so, oh, that's right. There was one so, paragraph. Yeah, I'm, was I'm pretty sure I'm speaking very literally. One paragraph. No, it's, it's about a page, if I recall. Is it correctly. really a whole page? I mean, he kind of addresses the view, then he yeah. cites a bunch of text. Then the thing that annoys me is here are the texts that Nick will say that this is true. Or, and I think, no, it was on entire sanctification. That, that section was about a page. And I was like, he's like, here are the verses, but he doesn't actually say why the verses are being interpreted wrongly. It's more just like, well, this word could refer to this. And I'm like, oh, that's so lazy. Give yeah, me real arguments. Okay. Let's go. You know, kind of thing. But as far as um, the intermediate say, I have no idea. I wouldn't be shocked if it's pretty shallow. He spends most of his yeah. time trying to tell women what they can't do because Jesus is subordinate to the Father. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. What do you want? What do you, what do you want? You know I'm right. <laughs> Uh, um, I didn't call you, him uh, no way, Wayne. <laughs> uh, that is the best thing that's ever happened in uh, evangelicalism, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Um, do you have uh, social media people can follow you at? You yes. got any projects uh, have, you, you can... want to plug? You got your, you got oh, your other podcasts? Uh, I do. My okay. wife and I are split co-hosting frame. the Split Frame of Reference podcast, if you're interested in women in ministry and the debate on that. And we do tackle the trinity. 
Um, actually, have we tackled the Trinity? I feel like we have. We, incidentally, at some point, maybe. Um, something I've been doing, and it's kind of on the hush-hush, but I don't have a problem telling folks about it, is I started a YouTube channel called New Testament Theologists. Okay. That's because I the joke is I take the temperature of the New Testament. <laughs> it, it, it's stupid. It makes me laugh. I don't know why. Um, but it's a YouTube channel going through just kind of issues in New Testament theology. And uh, the latest video I did was called Paul's Theology of Death, which I thought was very fun. I think that uh, would appeal to some of the listeners of this podcast. I think so. <laughs> um, and if, But if you YouTube look on YouTube, it'll come up... Um, New, you mean New Testament theology, and you have to go, no, New Testament theologist, like okay. apologist. I'll, I'll link to the channel okay. in the show notes for anyone awesome. who's having Thank trouble you. finding it. But yeah, uh, at then, Nick uh, Quint on Twitter. Twitter Nick and Quint. the YouTube channel are probably the best, best cool. places to find me. You working on any books? No, I'm, I'm, I just finished um, my research methods class for my doctorate, and so okay. um, now it's beginning the research stage in learning German. I've got well, most of them are right there. There's that whole shelf right there is all research stuff. Oh wow! And so, uh, hopefully, publish that. I sent out a few articles here and there. Oh, uh, two are going to be published on the Gospel of John. Oh, cool! Uh, one on prevenient grace and the prologue of John, and the other one on uh, human agency in John's Gospel. Okay. So you can hear my. We can. <laughs> we can argue. <laughs> I'll send them to you once they're nice and copyrighted and okay. all the errors are removed because cool. I don't know why I, I they never I never seem to be I I always miss errors I don't know what it is spelling <laughs> errors and stuff but those have been accepted for publication so okay cool uh, and then yeah so you're working on your doctorate how's that going it's going when very uh, when will I be able to call you Doctor Nick uh, th- between three and six years I have okay. six years to finish it oh wow okay. Um, and, and then, yes, and then best, case, best case, you finish in three? Yep. Cool. Uh, depends on finances and timing and yep. a lot of other stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's on universalism and Paul. Okay. So, and, again, be, uh, Nick is not a universalist. Not a, universal, not a universalist. <laughs> so not that, that might actually be something you'll all be interested in reading, probably, um, folks. Yep. Yeah. I'll be talking about it probably quite a bit in the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you talk about it here. If there's anything you want to air out, maybe think through. And, I could uh, do that. Yeah. Although if folks want to hear a little bit of what I think, they can listen to the one you and I did on 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, that's there is right. A text in, there is a text in there that people like to use. And we don't talk about yeah. it as much, uh-huh. but I also talk about it a little bit in the, the most recent YouTube video on the, on the channel. Okay, cool. Yeah, Paul's Theology of Death, because you've got to go through Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So all that will be linked in the show notes. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Um, All right, man. Well, thank you for joining me here, and uh, I really appreciate you. As as a friend, and a theologian, and a scholar, and a sassy person, and and a father Mm -hmm. to your beautiful child there. Mm -hmm. Wave goodbye. Wave goodbye to the podcast, people. No one. Say bye. Yeah, adorable. Good job. All right. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us, everybody.